We'll hear argument now in number 94-1511, Samuel A. Lewis versus Fletcher Casey. Uh, General Woods. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, this is an inmate access to the court case. The state of Arizona meets and exceeds the requirements of Bounds v. Smith by providing at the time of trial 26 law libraries at nine separate prison complexes across the state. As the prison population has grown from more than 15,000 to 22,000 prisoners, we've added seven more libraries for a total of 33. In addition to providing adequate legal resources to the inmates through these law libraries, Arizona goes above and beyond the requirements of bounds by facilitating the use of legal clerks and legal assistants to obtain books and to help in the preparation of lawsuits. Also, we encourage inmates to take our classes to teach them to read English, and we find them interpreters for non-English speaking inmates. We facilitate also assistance from family, from friends, outside lawyers and paralegals, and other prisoner rights groups. Although deference to state officials in the area of prison administration is required by this court, the district court in this case has imposed an order which micromanages virtually every aspect of prison life in this area. Additionally, the district court has entered its order despite a record that does not establish an injury warranting systemic relief. The result is that the order is overbroad, overreaching, and far beyond the requirements of bounds. Mr. Woods, what, what are the findings of the district court uh, that would support uh, a system-wide violation of bounds? Was there any express finding that there was a system-wide violation of the requirements this court set forth in bounds? We believe there is not, uh, Justice O'Connor. The, the, the record in this case is, is difficult, uh, and it's difficult for a variety of reasons, but one reason is because it's difficult to separate pure findings of fact from the judge's order from uh, how he has extrapolated that based upon, we believe, his misinterpretation of what bounds requires. Uh, if the court... Will you take the position that bounds was an either-or situation, that the state can provide a library or assistance? Yes. Well, Bounds said that in so many words, didn't it? Yes. Yeah, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, uh, I think it's important for the court to look at the reasoning behind Bounds and, and how well, it's been... Well, if you do that, I certainly think there is some indication that a prisoner who cannot read or who does not speak English might not have meaningful access to a library, even if it were there. And you want us to take the position that there's no requirement to provide any assistance at all. Uh, yes, Justice O'Connor. We believe that's, that's the proper reading of bounds, uh, although you we take, You take the position that uh, if a prisoner is illiterate or is illiterate in English, uh, that, that, that the requirements, therefore, are still satisfied so long as there is, in fact, a library in existence to which the prisoner could resort if he were able to read it. Uh, or a, um, uh, a legal helper to whom he could turn if he were able to communicate? That's correct. We believe Arizona goes far beyond the requirements of bounds, but we believe that the proper interpretation of bounds is that a law library in and of itself is enough. And so there is no obligation to an illiterate prisoner? 
the, the, obli the obligation is really not an affirmative duty. I think what we're asking the court to do is, is apply, uh, as the courts generally have over the past 18 years, apply the strict interpretation of bounds and the language of bounds. But that turns some... I'm sorry, I keep interrupting just a second. No, go ahead. Uh, this will be my last question. That, it seems to me, uh, turns the requirements, even in the strict either-or sense, into pure formalities. We're placing books in front of someone who cannot read them, and we're placing legal helpers in front of someone who cannot communicate with them. That seems utterly senseless. Okay. The, uh, just a certain why, why isn't it senseless? This is why we believe it's not. This is, again, you have to look at the reasoning behind bounds. And we believe the reason the court ruled the way it did in bounds is the court was saying that what we have to do is put prisoners on similar footing as they would be for access to the courts to people who were not incarcerated. The state has taken a step uh, in their lives that has put a barrier to the courts. And therefore, we have, to ha we have an affirmative duty to provide something there, in this case, well, the law library. suppose uh, we don't agree with you on the meaning of bounds, because there certainly is language in it that speaks in terms of meaningful access. Do you have a fallback position? Uh, yes, we do, Justice O'Connor. And the fallback position is that Arizona goes above and beyond the requirements of bounds. As I've said, we do facilitate legal clerks, legal assistants. Uh, they, again, you have to go to uh, what we're talking about. And, and the court has said well, in... Do you, do you want us to find that the district court findings were erroneous? I mean, what is it we're supposed to do? Parse through the record and say that their findings were clearly erroneous? Well, there, there are what is it you're asking us to do then? We're asking you to, uh, to reverse the findings of the district court because Arizona has met the requirements uh, set forth in bounds. The Arizona system provides meaningful access, and you can find so that. So you don't make an argument then today that the uh, injunction exceeded the scope of the district court's authority. You're, you're not making that argument, I take it. Uh, yes, we are making that argument. We don't think you have to get to that, but if you find uh, that is another fallback position, clearly in this case, if you found that uh, we were uh, uh, not in compliance with bounds, and that some remediation was appropriate, then you have to look at the scope of the injunction. And of course, when you when you look at, at a litany of cases from Dayton through the recent Jenkins case, you see that this case is a perfect example of of an overbroad order. Rather than finding a specific systemic injury and and trying to resolve that specific injury. What this district court judge has done is, is basically uh, decided how he would micromanage the prison to the point where he decides where people sit and when, who goes and when they go to the library. Uh, telephone calls is just one example I would give you. We have 22,000 prisoners. He's mandating by this order that we have to provide now 66,000 20-minute calls per week. General Woods, was there a point, ever a point after finding constitutional violation uh, at which the state was asked to come up with a plan to cure the violation or was this directly referred to a special master? Well, Justice Ginsburg, what the district court judge did was we had a prior uh, ruling from him in the Gluth case which was just uh, uh, applicable to one prison unit and it again micromanaged the entire unit much as this order does. He told us that he, his plan was to uh, put this order in place throughout the state, and he gave us the opportunity to uh, make any objections that we wanted to. 
which we did, but the, the ball game was over at that point. But before that, isn't, isn't it usual in these situations to give the state the first opportunity to present a remedial plan? Uh, yes, Justice Ginsburg, and that's exactly what Bounds requires, is that, uh, that you will give deference to the states, and the states will be allowed to, to formulate their own plans. Did you, did you ask at any point to be permitted to do that before you encountered the special master? We, we anticipated that that would be how, uh, the answer is yes, but we were not allowed to do so. What we were allowed to do is object any way we wanted to to the Gluth decision being, uh, being imposed upon us statewide. And again, I think that's why you have in this order, if you see, uh, we have orders for things that, are, that have nothing to do with the record. There was not even any testimony on. We're required to train inmates, for example, for, uh, for immigration law, for divorce and custody cases. According to this order, where uh, Mr. Woods, Attorney General Woods, um, did you give consideration or have any of the people that have written in this field, in the scholarly community, given any consideration to whether or not the library requirement makes sense at all? Uh, it, it seems to me that maybe libraries uh, might be a waste and that there might be much better, more efficient ways in which to provide prisoners some, some assistance. I think we've con we've considered that, and uh, I think these things will change with the advent of computers and and technology changing. Where the the old style law library may may someday be a thing of the past. But what the Bounds Court told us was that that we could choose between a law library or, and I believe the disjunctive was used some something like ten times in the decision, or some other form of legal assistance. Most states have chosen a law library. In the, in well, I'm, I'm asking whether or not other forms of legal assistance uh, were, were considered by you. It seems to me that you're uh, def uh, defending your position, advancing your position, um, on the theory that your library uh, facilities were adequate. Uh, you have not taken the position I take it, uh, uh, and, and have any other prisoners uh, or prison systems taken uh, the position that, that, that the library requirement is, is just fanciful. Uh, what prisoners need are small books with forms and a, and a couple people to tell them how to fill them out. Uh, I don't know uh, specifically if anyone has been bold enough to do that, Your Honor, in the face of of the Bounds decision. In, in other words, we have felt for 18 years we're required to do a law library. We can come up with another form well, of legal assistance. it says other forms yes. of legal assistance. But I, I think we would be hesitant, I'm, I'm supposing that the states would be hesitant to come up with, with too minimal of a plan for fear that it wouldn't meet the standards. And have there also, been any studies on the effectiveness of prison libraries? Well, there have been, there have been, there have been uh, commentators who have commentated upon it, but uh, I don't know that that's particularly persuasive. Uh, I, think, I think that the Bounds Court understood, we have to assume that they understood that there are illiter illiterate and non-English speaking prisoners in every prison in the United States. There were then, there are now, there always will be. And the point... General, General Woods, isn't it the case that in Bounds, the district judge would have preferred some other form of legal assistance? It was the state that decided that the library was a better way for it to go. This court mentioned both, but the district court in that case, I thought, had made it clear that he thought it would be a much better idea to provide some form of legal assistance other than federal reporters, state reporters on a shelf. I believe that's, that's correct, Justice Ginsburg, and, and this court, uh, as it, following the direction that, that it has given ever since then, 
deferred to the state administrators, which is only uh, only reasonable given the very difficult nature of prison administration. And so also, it's the state that made this choice. It's not the states. That, that's correct. It's not <laughs> something that this court, and surely not the district court in, in bounds, dictated. And haven't you made that same choice? In other words, you're defending uh, your position, advocating your position, based on the adequacy of the library system. Yes, we have. And, and Justice Kennedy, let me make it clear why, why we believe it is adequate and why this 18-year period of the states complying with bounds, mainly with law libraries, is sufficient. And it's because we put people on equal footing as, as to the people who have not committed crimes and who are not in prison. And then, what they can do on the outside, if a person is illiterate, if a person doesn't speak English, and they live in Phoenix, but they haven't committed a crime, they haven't murdered anybody, they're not incarcerated, if they have a 1983 case... They can go to the law library, public library. If they can't use it because of their own uh, personal uh, deficiencies, they can use family, friends. Uh, they can try to get a lawyer. They can use prisoner groups. And we facilitate that in Arizona. We allow them to do all of those sort of things. So they are not disadvantaged, and that's the point behind well, that. You're, you're not taking the position that it's irrelevant that they're illiterate then. You're not saying we can comply in a purely formal way and that's the end of the matter. <clears throat> What, what we can do... Well, isn't that correct? You're not... I thought you were taking the formal or formalistic position, and now it seems to me you're not. Am I correct that you are not? It's not formalistic in this sense. The affirmative duty that we have is, is to provide a law library. However, we also have an obligation from Johnson to Wolf and, and beyond not to place barriers to the prisoners so that they can't access lawyers, prison well, groups, you, friends, and other Let roommates. me put it another way. Do you deny that you have any affirmative obligation to give the prisoners some capacity, whether it be through other prisoners, family, friends, the, the group you were mentioning, to be able to use the library or to have access in some other way? Do you deny that you have any affirmative obligation? Justice Souter, I don't know that I would characterize it as an affirmative obligation. It's an obligation not to interfere with that. Well, that seems to me a somewhat negative obligation. Yes. Uh, and, and I take it you deny that you have any affirmative obligation. That's correct. That, well, so that's... that if you had a prisoner who had no friends, and there were no other prisoners who could or would help him, and there were no legal assistance, and all there was was a library, you would say we have done all that the law requires. I'd be would... in the same shape. You would say he'd be in the same shape he was in if he was not in prison. Correct. No, friend, that, no library, no lawyer. That person may live in Phoenix and have not committed a crime, and we wouldn't have an obligation to him either. I would point out. Is your case? Do you do you do you rest your whole case win or lose on that position? Uh, no. Um, I... <laughs> uh, again. Uh, this court can decide this case based upon what Arizona does, and we do. We move far uh, beyond the requirements of bound. May all of the things that we do, but you don't. But May I ask you sort of a specific question? We're talking in general terms here. You mentioned earlier about the large number of phone calls that have to be made. As I understand, you don't have to pay for those calls, do you? <clears throat> As I understood, the, the district judge said they could call, collect, or pay for them. Uh, that's correct, Justice Stevens. We the we don't have to pay. And is it not also true that he made findings that the prisoners had been arbitrarily denied access to their attorneys over the phone? And do you, do you question those findings? Well, I'm really asking whether you think there was any violation at all here justifying any relief, or are we just talking about the scope of relief? Uh, the, the answer to the question is no, we do not find any systemic violation. Uh, he, uh, and to answer the cost question first, 
it's extremely costly, and this order would be would basically break the bank in most of the states, and I don't think I'm exaggerating there. We don't have to pay for the actual phone call because they call collect, but we have to escort prisoners uh, to and from these uh, these phone calls. Uh, we have to we'll have to install extra phone lines. We'd have to hire extra guards. California, for example, we're talking about almost 20 million calls per year of a 20-minute uh, length that they would have to somehow facilitate. And remember, the judge said that if nobody answers or if they don't accept the call, that doesn't count. It's just totally impractical, and that's the sort of thing that the prison administrators themselves well, will be able again, to do. again, what I'm really trying to find out, let's assume that maybe he's ordered too many phone calls. Are you taking a position he had no authority to order any phone calls, that there was no violation of their rights, of access to their lawyers, by the way in which the prisons restricted and, and listened in on the calls and that sort of thing. Justice Stevens, I, I would apply the, um, the Turner analysis here because we do not allow them uh, simply to, uh, to walk up and use the phone because, again, most of the calls... No, I understand that. But are you saying there was no evidentiary basis for a finding of violation of constitutional rights in denying adequate use of the phone? Well, Maybe much should have been much less than they allowed, but are you saying there was no evidence of a violation at all? There's no evidence of a systemic violation because what, what he found was that there were, a, I think there were two inmates who said that uh, their confidentiality was violated because they asked the guard to leave the room and he wouldn't. The guard testified differently, but where, he believed you, the prisoner. Where do you get the Constitution right to make phone calls out of prison? Uh, I don't believe you have that. Uh, again, Arizona, I think, go, goes uh, beyond what it needs to do and that we allow them to do that. We do encourage, uh, we encourage them to uh, confer by mail. No, but again, I'm trying to figure out, are you asking that the entire decree be vacated and the complaint be dismissed because there's no proof of any violation, or are you merely arguing, as I thought you were, that he overreached in a lot of the provisions of the decree and we should trim it back somewhat? Which, which is the basic approach you take? Well, the basic approach is that, is that you should simply reverse it because there is no evidence... Reverse and direct dismissal of the complaint. That's correct. Now, again, falling back from that, if you didn't want to do that, you could simply... Well, most of the argument in the briefs is not about whether there was a violation, but rather about whether he was uh, overly ambitious in the relief he granted. Well, uh, I think what we tried to point out when we talked about injury in the brief is that, again, going back to Jenkins and, and, and Dayton, uh, City of Los Angeles versus Lyons, where, where one, two, or three instances, when they find that, that's not evidence that we need systemic relief, and there, there is no evidence here that we need systemic relief, unless you feel that bounds needs to be dramatically expanded. General Woods, are you attacking, are you saying the findings themselves were not sufficient or the evidence beneath them? Because I think you told us that these findings didn't originate with the judge, that they were indeed, uh, I think you said, a verbatim what was submitted to him, the findings that oh. he made. Yes, that's that's correct. Uh, they were verbatim what was submitted to him. Uh, his his factual findings are difficult to discern because they are submitted by whom? What are you talking about? I don't even understand what you're saying. The the judge basically adopted the inmates' version of of everything, uh, the findings of fact and the conclusions of law. Well, all right, let's. I mean, that's fairly normal. Parties submit findings, and yes. the judge. Uh, the the the. Uh, uh, Following up on what Justice Stevens said, I, as I read this, and your opponents say this, at the heart of this decree, there are a lot of provisions to it, and I think your opponents, to my reading, concede that some are overreaching. But at the heart of it, 
lie 261 prisoners who are locked, locked up. And what I think it found is respect to those who were locked up in solitary confinement or whatever, that often they can only ask for one or two law books at a time, and there are frequently long delays, one day, two days, three days, and sometimes weeks before they get those one or two law books. That seems supported in the record, and your opponents concede that we could modify the decree in that respect, and they don't have to be escorted across the place. All they have to have on page 39 is some effective method. All right. The second major part of this was the Hispanic population and possibly the illiterates. And as to the Hispanic population, there are a lot of them, and there are findings that the Hispanic people cannot read these law books and are not given proper assistance of any sort, such as organizing other Hispanic bilingual prisoners. And the decree in that respect didn't require too much. It simply required that they get down to figuring out how these Hispanic people systematically could, could rely on bilingual prisoners to help them out. All right. At least as to those two key matters, which I think everyone thinks at the heart of this, is there any argument that we should, I mean, why, why shouldn't we do just what your opponents tell us to do in that respect? Well, which is either to modify or to, to affirm uh, those two key provisions, and then systematically, it wouldn't take too long, go through the other ones and see whether they may or may not have gone beyond the evidence. Your Honor, I, I, I think it, regarding the lockdown prisoners, then I, I believe they're clearly... Uh, we're not talking about an inadequate law library. What they were complaining about was yes. just what I said. I, I understand that. But that means, I believe, that you go to the Turner analysis and you have to see, uh, in that case, uh, a whole variety of things. And also, even under the Ninth Circuit's interpretation of injury, you have to find injury. And you have to find systemic injury. And there is no, no injury here. There, is there not injury in the fact, to take one example, a person is locked down. He says, I would like to see some law books. He makes a request. He gets no books for many days. Finally, he gets one book. Then he asks to ask for another book. It would take him four years before he was able to have enough books actually to see what the law was. I mean, those seem found here. Isn't that injury? If that was, if that was the case, uh, Your Honor, I think Arizona would have a bigger problem. But that's not the case, and that is not even what this court found. What do you mean by a bigger problem? Do you concede, General Woods, that a lockdown prisoner is entitled to have law books, even for matters that have nothing to do with a collateral attack on his conviction? I think even that... for matters that have nothing to do with the Constitution? He's entitled to that as one of his basic needs, like food, housing, shelter, medical care, and a lawyer? Is, is, is you, you made that concession? No, I don't make that concession. Well, then what about, what about the uh, uh, wanting law books either for collateral attacks mm -hmm. on his conviction or because he feels he's being treated in an unlawful manner? I, I imagine sure. people don't read these books for their health. I, I assume that they have a reason for wanting them. What Once about again, yeah. Justice Breyer, the reason I point to the, first the necessity for systemic injury is because the findings here by the judge were that many times, use the word many, uh, they had to wait a, long, a longer period of time. Also, we found, though, that, that it's very clear. The policy in Arizona is they get their books within 24 hours. That may be the policy, but what he found happened was they are routinely denied physical access. There are often long delays in receiving books, and then there's a lot of testimony in that respect. But the, often long delays. 
the policy is 24 hours, and, and the record shows from the testimony that that is generally what happens. The fact that sometimes, somewhere in a prison, you can, you can find nine days, seven days. The Bureau of Prisons' own policy from their brief is three to four days, but and yet we're doing 24 hours. General Woods, isn't it inevitable that if the state takes the position that it's going to comply with bounds by having a library system, that you're going to get decrees like this. If I were a district judge and I read the requirements of the Supreme Court that you'd have to have a law library, the first thing I'd do probably is make up a list of the books that ought to be in the library and how often it ought to be open. And all we're doing is just arguing about detail. It seems to me that once you accept the, the requirement and bounds that you have an affirmative obligation uh, to provide a library, we're going to be talking uh, up here. Uh, we may disagree on exactly how long it ought to be open and how... Uh, much of a delay is acceptable, but I, I, it just seems to me that uh, the district judge is essentially correct in most of what he said uh, if there is an affirmative obligation to provide a library. Well, we don't believe that that, that 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 is the case, that the case is that if we provide a reasonably adequate law library, that, that that's enough, and you don't have to micromanage it from from there. If it pleases the court, I would like to reserve the rest of my time. I, I have one question, if I may. It seems to me that there are essentially two kinds of legal as opposed to factual issues here. The, the first we've spent a lot of time on, and that is what is the required uh, uh, level of access and, and so on, and whether you have an affirmative obligation. The other one you've touched upon a couple of times uh, by reference to Turner, and that is how do we measure sort of what the kind of the reasonable level of required uh, uh, service may be uh, or required opportunity? Um, I think I'm correct that you argued on the basis of Turner uh, in at least your reply brief in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, did you go to the district court at any time and say, uh, look, we not only have to apply bounds here, we have to ap apply bounds in the light of Turner? which sort of looks, as it were, to both sides of the, the, the equation. Did you, did you make that argument that the, to the district court that it wasn't applying Turner and should have? The answer is yes, we did. And I think I, it appears that the district court judge simply had his own version of, of this expansive reading of bounds and, and never applied any other test would, whatsoever. Would, on, on what I'm calling here sort of the second issue, call it the overreaching issue if you want to, uh, do you believe it would be appropriate for us to return the case to the Ninth Circuit and perhaps have them return it to the district court for a consideration of Turner? We don't believe you have to do that, and, and we're a little wary, frankly, of going back and forth. You, you, you want an all-or-nothing win here, in effect. That's, win that's correct. If it pleases the court, I would like to reserve the rest of my time. Very well, General Woods. Uh, Ms. Alexander, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, before I start trying to talk systematically about this case, I'd like to respond to a few of the questions from, from General Wood's uh, discussion. Uh, first, uh, I think the basic finding here uh, was that the vast majority of adult prisoners have no adequate means to research and present the, their papers in court, and that, that was made up of, of specific findings in a number of elements, the lockdown, how the lockdown system, the system 
as to how the, the great majority of prisoners actually got the books from the library in an ability to use them, uh, how, how, how the staffing worked in the system, how the law clerks, who, by the way, have no role in research, uh, worked, how the supposed one source of legal assistance worked, that is, that is the prisoner legal assistance, and what the, the sources for illiterate and Spanish-speaking prisoners were. Uh, I want to point out also that in the defendant's reply brief, they said that they were not challenging any of the findings of the district court as clearly erroneous. And I want to further point out that uh, a number of the findings, and these actually from the district court, if one goes back, both parties submitted findings, a number of the findings actually came from defendants. Uh, I want to further say that I do not believe that the order, uh, that the record supports the claim that the state asked for some different form of developing the remedy. Uh, I do not believe that there is anything at all that would, that would support that. I thought that, uh, I thought that the, the claim was they had no opportunity to, that they, that they were given simply uh, the choice of, decide, of, of saying why the previous order that had been applied more narrowly shouldn't be extended statewide. But Is that inaccurate? They, they never asked for anything else. They well, had it's too late to ask for that when, when, when the judge summons you up and says, tell me why this order shouldn't be applied statewide. No, Your Honor, I don't think that's so, because they had five opportunities to say anything in this order is not correct. And any one of those... They had five opportunities, but were they ever given the opportunity uh, to propose, to, to draft and propose their own order? Did the uh, judge ever give them that opportunity? Not in that form, but I don't well, think... What, what, uh, what form did it give them? The opportunity... Right to comment on its proposal? Yes, but that, that did not limit in any manner. Ms. Alexander, is that common in these institutional decrees? Uh, I think it, it's something that juts out in this case. And whether we're talking about prisons, schools, other institutions, isn't it usual for the uh, alleged offend offender, the state, to be given the opportunity to come up with a plan? And if that's no good, sometimes the court has to devise its own. Justice O'Connor, that is a, that is a common. Uh, excuse me, Justice Ginsburg. My apologies. Uh, uh, that is a usual way of of doing this. However, the factual history in this is that state had originally in the Gluth case completely failed to cooperate in any manner with the district court. That order then went to, from the district court to the Court of Appeals was, was a That's no excuse. If it should be done that way, it should be done that way. We, we, but certainly I would don't think... Don't punish the state for past defalcations. I can't imagine a judge just whipping up an order on his own and submitting it to the state without, without asking the state, who knows a lot more about running prisons, how to solve the problem. I just can't imagine that. Well, I think the, the, this was an injunction that was running in one of the institutions. Uh, and uh, uh, there's nothing that the state lost by this process, nothing at all. Well, how about uh, the loss of, of any Turner analysis in this thing? I mean, in the Turner case, uh, this court indicated that prisoners' claims of constitutional violations have to be viewed through some kind of a lens of deference to the needs for prison security and so forth. And there is no indication in this record that I have found of any Turner-type analysis by the district court in deciding to issue the order and injunction that it did in this case. Your Honor, Can you point me to that? I would certainly agree that there is no place at, 
anywhere in the court's findings in the district court in which it says, here I am applying the Turner analysis and here is what I find. I, uh, and the breadth of the detailed orders is breathtaking. It has to do with noise levels in these places and hours of operation and no deference to the prison's need for lockdown or security. I mean, it's just, it really is breathtaking in its scope. Your Honor, if I could take that apart just a bit. Uh, the, the, uh, I agree that, that the noise provision goes too far, and I have no problem with, with uh, just simply getting rid of it. Uh, but the, 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 the claim that it, uh, somehow it prohibits their lockdown system and requires lockdown prisoners to, to get uh, direct access to the books is just not correct. It's very clear in the commentary that 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 was never what the the judge or the special master intended. And if there's it's any not clear from the language of the injunction, is it? It's but it is completely clear from the commentary. And if the court has any question about that, uh, we also have no objection to to a modification to make that absolutely clear. Well, Mr. Uh, Alexander, on a on a broader level, I think Justice O'Connor has has raised this. My, my reading of the district court order, and I believe of the Ninth Circuit um, opinion, fails even, I think, to disclose a single citation to Turner. Do you claim that, let me ask you two questions. Do you agree that Turner is applicable here, that, that bounds must be read in the light of Turner? Uh, yes, and I, I, if I could go on to explain my answer on that. Sure. I, I'll tell you what my second question is, because that may be what you're going to get at. Even though neither court, if I, my recollection is correct, so much as cited Turner, do you claim that Turner was in fact applied by the court? I believe that if one looks at the district, how the district court treated those things and in fact left, for example, the lockdown provisions in place, means that, that in effect uh, Turner was applied. Now, in terms of the relationship between Turner... Well, I think that boils down to saying that if we assume Turner was applied, that particular aspect of the order is not inconsistent as a matter of law with a Turner analysis, but that's about as far as we can go. Is I would agree. We, yeah. okay. uh, the relationship between bounds and any affirmative obligations in the prison context case, whether personal safety or whatever, uh, is that there's, a, there's an oblig obligation to provide that. However, that doesn't mean that regulations that have some incidental effect on something that's an affirmative obligation, uh, therefore cannot be put in place on the state. So if there is something that both has Turner implications... We speak of an affirmative obligation, Ms. Alexander. Now, in Estelle against Gamble, where we were dealing with medical claims of prisoners under the uh, cruel line, the basic approach of the court was, you've got this fellow in prison, this woman in prison, and they're sick, you can't just leave them there because if they were on the outside of the prison, they could have gone and done something about it. Uh, isn't, shouldn't our approach here be somewhat similar? That we do, the, the idea of an affirmative obligation to do more than the person could have done if he were outside, I, I don't see where that comes from. Actually, I think Estelle, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, is a good illustration of how this principle works because there is no obligation for the person who's bleeding on the street for the state to do something because the state hasn't been involved in that. Uh, but there is an affirmative obligation on the part of the state to provide medical care for the person who is in uh, Even though he has custody. appendicitis, it isn't bright. he's not beaten up in the prison. He just has some disease that he could easily just as well have gotten outside. But still, he's been cut off from access to other medical services 
resources, so the prison has to supply it. But That's it does correct. have to supply more than he could have gotten on the outside. Well, it, it has to, to provide reasonable medical care, just as it has to provide reasonable safety. That is the affirmative obligation. That is the obligation that... Uh, well, incidentally, where does that affirmative obligation come from? I, I understand the sick prisoner case. That comes from the Eighth Amendment. This isn't an Eighth Amendment case, is it? That's correct, Your Honor. It is so, not. so where does this affirmative obligation to provide a law library come from? It imbounds. It imbounds. It, it comes from the fact that the right of access to courts is the most fundamental right that a prisoner has, because no other right, including Eighth Amendment rights, can. can well, depends on what purpose the access is sought. For what purpose the access is sought, doesn't it? I mean, if you say for purposes of vindicating constitutional rights taken away when he's thrown in prison, I suppose that's that's true. Yes. But if you're talking about the right to sue for some monetary damages, that's just a deprivation of economic welfare, which he's been deprived of that when he's thrown in prison. He can't go out and make money in all sorts of ways. I don't see that that's so fundamental. I agree that the, that the most fundamental core of the right of access to courts has to do with, uh, with those things related to the criminal Maybe process. the only one. Maybe the and only one. I don't see how the other has anything to do with, uh, with, with fundamental human rights. Well, civil rights under Section 1983, I would think, is equally fundamental because if that doesn't exist, then absolutely nothing that the prison authorities do to the person while in prison can be redressed. Well, I'd say that, but that's a constitutional violation again. I would agree, I'm, Your Honor. I'm giving, and those... you, I'm giving you constitutional violations, but would you acknowledge that, that as far as uh, the obligation is the prison, they don't have to give any legal advice about anything that doesn't deal with constitutional violations? I think that that is more debatable. However, custody rights are, are, are also relate to a fundamental interest, and uh, immigration is, in fact, so closely tied to the criminal process. You think they have to, the, the prisons have to provide advice on immigration? I think that, that, that it is not uh, beyond the discretion of the district court. Well, what provision of the Constitution would, would cause that to be required? Collateral to the criminal justice rights because they are so closely related. I, well, immigration is it an abuse of discretion? Wait, wait, not to get, collateral to the criminal justice rights? I, I, I don't really understand your answer. Well, there are a number you, of... You can be deported. It's not criminal. Your Honor, uh, there, a number of detainer issues with regard to immigration also have effects in the criminal justice system. However, I, I would think that in the overall context, this is not nearly as important. Almost all of the access that's here involved in this case has to do with the two fundamental things that Justice Scalia mentioned. That is, the direct relation to the criminal justice process and civil rights. The, well, well, those things may be taken care of maybe by four or five form books. Um, has, there been any, has there been any studies to show the effectiveness, the cost-effectiveness of these massive libraries? Your Honor, I can't answer the question directly in that form. What I can say, but I can't give the court citations, is that the studies of effective legal access programs show that the effect of the program is to reduce the filing of frivolous lawsuits. The volume goes down because once prisoners have some opportunity to know what are the requirements of of in the federal system, it's now running 1% successful. Uh, that may be, the, uh, but those are still extraordinarily important cases because without some access to the courts, then there is no possible limit on governmental power. These are the people who have the, in which there is the most possibility of abuse of... of Ms. Alexander, may I ask you to focus for a minute on what you say the injury is 
uh, that must be proven for a, a system-wide violation that would justify a system-wide decree. There has to be a threat of injury uh, for, to the class uh, or some defined portion of the class. Uh, a constitutional injury? Yes, Your Honor. And uh, in this context, what do you say has to be established to justify system-wide relief? Well, in terms of the argument that the defendants have made, the, we oh, are in terms of what you say the class representatives must prove. The class get system-wide relief. The, they must prove that, the, that this entire system as directed to this element poses a, an, an real and immediate threat to the rights of access of the class. The, the question, to go back for a second, is, uh, is you know a lot more about this, actually, and as you've read into the constitutional basis for bounds, I think really the question is, in my mind, too, what, what, what part of the Constitution does it rest on? Naively, I've thought, well, the person is being deprived of his liberty. He's in prison, so he's deprived of his liberty. In a certain number of cases, small perhaps, it will be an improper deprivation. And he has to have some kind of process available, or at least he can't be cut off from process, uh, through which he could challenge what could be an unlawful deprivation of his liberty. So in my own mind, I was pinning it on the 5th or 14th. But that's a naive and uninformed reaction compared to what yours will be. So I think people are trying to get at what, what, what in your reading has, has struck you or you've come to the conclusion as to what the bounds basis is in the Constitution, quite literally and specifically, what amendment do you tie it to? Well, is, and I'm not asking you to accept my characterization. You might uh, Justice uh, Breyer, the bound says also that it's a due process right. I notice that Turner versus Safley uh, uh, describes Johnson v. Avery, the, the earlier right of access case, as involving a First Amendment uh, petition right. Uh, uh, I think the reason that one could describe it best as a due process process right is that it has various elements. It has elements of equal protection. It has elements uh, for a person who's already been convicted of petitions to redress uh, grievances. Uh, and for those, those reasons, I, I have no quarrel with Bound's description of it as a due process right. My other question, if I could ask it now, is, is the, um, as you say in your brief on page 39, for example, I think you believe yourself that that in certain respects this decree is overdrawn. And your, your opponent's brief, which is very good, points out in certain respects, it, it is, seemed to me, is in certain respects overdrawn. Yet there are other respects that you point to which may have a good basis, uh, and they've challenged those too, but, I mean, the evidence seems more on your side, in my opinion, but in other ones not. So what, in your view, should this court do? If we think there are certain basic things, like the Hispanic and 261 locked-up people, where the evidence is not too terrible for you, and there are other respects where the evidence seems pretty good for their side. And, and so, so what, what, what should we do? Should we act like an appeals court and just review the decree as if we were an appeals court? Should we send it back? Uh, how, how do we get to the result even that you want on page 39? Uh, if the court were of the view that a constitutional violation had been proven, but was concerned that certain aspects, subsidiary aspects of the remedy, did not appropriately consider the Turner analysis. The appropriate uh, 
relief, I would think, would be to remand to the Ninth Circuit with directions to remand to the district court to determine what provisions uh, uh, should have a Turner analysis then applied. I'd like Ms. to... Ms. Alexander, but what about the problem that we were discussing before about who frames the remedy? Uh, are you, if you think that we, are, we have no reason to be concerned with the method by which this decree was arrived at, that is, a special master was appointed... He drafted the um, decree. How do you answer the question that the state never had a chance to come up with its own plan? Should it not be given now a chance to do so? Uh, Justice Ginsburg, uh, it seems to me that that it would be wrong to apply a flat-out rule that no district court can ever enter structural relief without first giving a defendant, no matter how recalcitrant, no matter what the history... But the judge never said why he wasn't... Nothing on the record indicates why the state wasn't given an opportunity to present a plan. Well, Your Honor, I think that one can, can look at the record. One can look at what happened in Gluth. One can look at the finding of the district court that, that any books that, that were not on the Mickey, so-called Mickey list were uh, then immediately removed from the law library. One can look at the finding of the special master in the development of the process that there had been retaliatory practices at some of the facilities, and that's in the comments. We, we would be, you seem to be suggesting that we should make the best case for the judge why he didn't ask the state to come up with a plan first. And I could agree with you that it's not an inexorable requirement in every case. But there is a a lot of litigation like this, and this is an important question about what is the general way of proceeding. So if it's proper here for the judge to say, system-wide violation, I will appoint a special master, that's one thing. If not appropriate, what should the judge do once he finds a, vi- a system-wide violation. I think it would be different, Your Honor, if the court were now to tell district judges there is such a rule, but to apply retroactively in this case the, a rule that a district judge who gave the defendants eight months and five sets of objections, uh, during which uh, and many informal meetings with the special master, and in which many, many, if not most, of the defendant's objections were accommodated. Indeed, the only reason, for example, that the noise provision that for the first time in the Supreme Court the defendant's objected to uh, is in there is at no earlier point did the defendant say, we don't want it. There ought to be some obligation on the part of state... They were given the chance, as I understand, to say why the earlier order, which contains such a provision, should not be applied statewide. And had they taken that opportunity, it would have been out of there, because in fact, I will, I said there was that is not an opportunity to object to one of the provisions of the earlier order. It is simply an objection to say why the earlier order shouldn't be extended statewide. But you know, I'm not even as far along as Justice Ginsburg. I don't know why it shouldn't be an inexorable requirement. What is wrong with an absolute requirement that before a district judge decides how to manage prisons, he ought to ask the state how they think it ought to be managed? It fell- it, what is wrong with making that an absolute, universal, inexorable rule? It fails to account for the circumstance that if the defendants are not going to cooperate, the district court is going to be forced to to delay the imposition of... You you have two weeks to come up with a plan. If you don't come up within two weeks, I'll make up my own. I'll use the one I used, uh, you know, 
several years ago. I think that suggests some of the practical difficulties. If the state, in fact, had been given two weeks to come up with a plan, I, I submit to the court that what it would, have, it would have been able to submit in that time would have been less responsive to its interests than the eight-month period it And has. if two weeks is a reasonable period and the state comes up with something that's, that's patently absurd, the judge will say, well, I gave you your chance, now I'm going to make up one. If that's, that's if that's the oper- if that is actually what the rule of the court were, it would be a, it would be a rule that wouldn't really give the state and local defendants anything that they now don't have because it wouldn't be it would be a, just a, a formality for this judge to give them something. Uh, Ms. Alexander, l- let me return, if I may, to the question of systemic violation, and I- I'd like to get some feel for how you would quantify. It. Supposing there are 260 prisoners in lockdown, and a number of them request books. And uh, say in maybe two or three of those examples, the books that don't come within a three-day period that the regulations require. Now, is that a systemic violation? Your Honor, first of all, I, let me say that that's not this case. No, yeah. but I, I, give me some idea of, of what, how many individual violations you have to get of, say, the performance of a particular prison official before you get what's called a systemic violation. Obviously, one can't give a a hard and fast rule, but I think the key here is looking. Is this the way, based on what you know about the system, does this represent isolated events, or is based on what the system is supposed to do, is this what is to be expected? This is a case in which what the evidence showed how the system was working was exactly how one would expect this system to work. Is the evidence here, the evidence in footnotes 23, 24, and 25 on page 23A, whereas I count there are about 50 or 60 examples. Is that, is that what you, do you know what I'm referring to? Uh, yes, Your Honor. All right, is that, is that the, the relevant evidence uh, in this respect to the 261 lockdown prisoners? Uh, Your Honor, if I could say again... Is uh, more the, than that or is that not relevant? I mean, that's what I was looking at. Uh, the, the, I think there is more evidence. That's, that's, what, that's what the district judge cited. Uh, there is more evidence in the record, particularly from the transcripts about that. Uh, but did, did any of those instances indicate that there was a real danger of a constitutional right being sacrificed? Yes, because... Uh, or being impaired. What, 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 what was one of those? And have, having in mind that only 1% of prisoner petitions are successful anyway. Where, where, where in one of these is, is, is there a real threat of a constitutional right in a concrete sense being deprived? Well, first, Your Honor, I think the right is, is of access is violated whether or not the prisoner would ultimately succeed if the prisoner was denied a reasonable opportunity to present his or her claims to court. And certainly there was testimony with regard to the lockdown system that that happened. There were prisoners who, who were unable to get the books, unable to find figure out. Uh, you mean there's a right of access even if you don't have a, 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 a ground for complaint? There is a right of access to determine, Your Honor, whether there is a ground uh, uh, to file a case. And certainly that's what we would want prisoners to do. We would want prisoners to, to be able to determine before they file whether or not what they're filing is a frivolous case. And there certainly was evidence uh, that, that this system, with regard to the one book delivered to the cell with nothing to tell the prisoner uh, that he wants or she wants, volume 452 uh, uh, of bed There's no evidence of the efficacy of that system, is there? Uh, 
of how the, the whether the loss yes there is evidence there is, what is there, evidence? there's evidence that that that's how it normally worked that it normally took a long time what the no, president no, there, there's no there's no evidence that there is some demonstrated link between access to library materials and successful prisoner petitions there is evidence contrast to simply following the form that's prescribed in the in the uh, uh, federal rules of civil procedure there is evidence that those persons who didn't get it were not able to file cases and were and had their cases dismissed because they were unable to make responses uh, in conformity with the, with the the order. And your honor, I was how many instances of that were found? Was it two? Your honor, that is a misunderstanding that the defendants first put forward in their reply brief. If one looks at the findings of the district court on this point, it's not that there were two incidents. It is that prisoners plural were unable to file their cases. Prisoners plural had their cases dismissed. Now it may it is the case that the judge cites on this only one witness for each. But that certainly is not what the, the evidence in this case showed. There were, there were numerous other witnesses who testified to similar events, and I could go through them. Well, isn't the district court under some obligation, if he's going to give a system-wide remedy, to say, this is the reason I find a systemic violation, that there were not just two prisoners who failed to get their books, but that there were 26? Your Honor, I believe that, that he did make systemic file, uh, uh, findings. And given that the defendants specifically say in their reply brief, we are not challenging any of the findings of the district court as clearly erroneous, I, I think this issue is at an end. But, okay, but if you say prisoners are not getting books, you know, is it two prisoners? Is it three? You can't challenge that finding as clearly erroneous if only two got it, because two is, is a plural. So you, you can't challenge that, and yet it doesn't lay the groundwork for a systemic violation. Well, I think the, the, what I would see is the missing step in this. Uh, for the two, we, we disagree. We do, that's not what was involved. But in any event, these are cases uh, in, uh, in which someone had actually had his or her constitutional rights impaired. The, but the question the district judge ought to be addressing is a different one. Is there threatened injury from the class? When I see that these harms have occurred, that this same system is operating the way I would expect this flawed system to operate. And what, therefore, what all of them, why wouldn't it satisfy the Constitution if prisoners were allowed to file whatever they want to file and, and provided access to forms so that they could file? And secondly, they were also provided access to legal advice. Period. No books, no anything else. They have the forms. You fill out a form, we'll mail it for you. And moreover, you can have legal advice about what? any particular issues you want to, you, you, you want to discuss. Uh, any particular constitutional issues you want to discuss. Maltreatment in prison, uh, uh, your conviction was, uh, was void for some reason. For some prisoners, that might well provide meaningful access. To, uh, it, but for a prisoner who cannot write... Uh, the opportunity to be given legal advice uh, and to be given form books just doesn't work to be... I'll, I'll add that. The legal advice and the lawyer will fill out the form for you if you can't write. The, in fact, I would say that the best systems are those systems in, that rely on something like that, and rely on using direct sources of assistance. Oh, that in would be good, and you could get rid of the library in that. Oh, absolutely. We have no, we have no uh, attachment to law libraries. Personally, I think law libraries are not the best way to provide access. But, but in some sense, 
what bounds does here is helpful because it gives us a, something to measure our access by. Does the prisoner have the access that is equivalent to what a literate prisoner given access to a law library would have? That ought to be the appropriate standard. Thank, Thank you. you, Ms. Alexander. Uh, General Wood, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, first, there were no... Uh, there was no showing of actual injury by any lockdown inmates. It wasn't two. Two would not be enough for a systemic remedy, but there were none. I, I count 30, uh, 29 in those footnotes. I mean, I don't know what you mean by actual injury, but I, he listed 29 instances in which there were delays that he thought were significant or... Uh, well, this is, this uh, is the question... 61. This is the question, Justice Breyer. We do not believe that delay... Uh, is actual injury. We're talking about whether somebody actually had a case or a cause of action somehow impaired because of delay. Prisoners, the one thing there they have in abundance is time. And if it takes four or five days and they have a statute of limitations of 300 days, they are not impaired. Secondly, Turner has to be applied to the lockdown situation. It, it, that, I think, is crystal clear that first Turner wasn't applied, and if it is applied, that there is a legitimate peniological interest in saying that you can't have an unlimited amount of books in a cell, that you can't have them for an unlimited amount of time, uh, and uh, that our system, where, which was in place at this time, and Exhibit 785 shows that legal assistance would go and help these people if they're illiterate or if they just wanted any help, that that is a reasonable system. And Turner has to be applied to lockdown, and that lockdown situation isn't just in Arizona, it's in every prison, and in fact ours is better than the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, I think the whole point here, uh, I'd like to conclude and ask the court to consider. What Arizona has done and what most states have done is we've met your precedent. We've said we have a law library and it's an adequate law library. A pocket part missing here or there that the judge pointed out does not make it inadequate. And then we have removed any barriers for incarcer for caused by incarceration as dictated by Johnson, by Wolf. If you can't speak English on the outside, you try to get help from whoever you can get help from. We provide that on the inside. We go above and beyond that. And I, I think that, that is the key point. And Thank that's you, what General we ask you to reverse. Thank the you. The case is submitted. We'll hear